0: Cultural, economic, political, maybe a dash of social issues. These are discussions that we've been having since time immemorial. But it's easy to view these issues as binary. It's easy to view them as either black or white, when in fact, they're a whole lot of gray. On this episode of A Whole Lot of Grey, we are going to be talking about the very real world dangers that come with endorsing an ideology like communism and just how devastating the ideology has been throughout human history. And to arrive at this conclusion, we're going to be talking about two things. The first, the sheer lack of awareness that exists about communism. And the second, why democratic countries should work towards marginalizing communist ideologies from the mainstream. So let's talk about the sheer lack of awareness that currently exists about communism. My home country, India, is currently in the midst of mass-scale protests against a new piece of legislation passed by the government. And mainstream media outlets and social media users and all opposition political parties have been quick to criticize the government for their alleged undermining of democratic processes and democratic institutions during this time. One such criticism, though, caught my eye. The criticism read as follows, I quote, We consider this bill as being completely violative of the Indian constitution and aimed at destroying the secular democratic foundations of the Indian Republic. Again, fairly routine criticism of a government policy from an opposition political party. But it wouldn't have been so eye-catching had that criticism not been levied by the CPI which is the Communist Party of India. It's always a sweet irony when a political party whose foundations are communist deems something as aimed at destroying the democratic foundations of our country. So why is this ironic? While there are a ton of definitions surrounding what communism is, former professor at California State University, Matthew Rosenberg, gives us the most comprehensive definition. And it's important to note that I picked this particular definition since it accounts for both the political as well as economic aspects of communism, given that communism is both a political as well as an economic ideology. So his definition states the following, that communism is both a political system as well as an economic one. Communist parties have absolute power over governance, and elections are usually single-party affairs. The party controls the economic system as well, and private ownership is usually illegal, with the exception of China, and we'll be covering this exception throughout the course of this podcast. There are currently five communist states in the world today, as per the World Population Review. For your reference, these are China, Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and Laos. And like we mentioned in the definition earlier, China is an exception to the economic caveat and the private ownership caveat. But none of these five countries, including China, have things like free and fair democratic elections or a free and fair political opposition. Additionally, none of these countries, including China, have things like a free and fair press. According to Dr. Farid Zakaria, having a free and fair press, having a tolerance to political opposition, having free and fair elections, things like these are the core tenets of a functioning democracy. Now take the case of India which today is the world's large democracy and which enjoys all of the above. There has been only one instance in all of India's history where the above democratic tenets were violated, and that was the 1975 emergency. For those of you wondering what that was, especially our non-Indian listeners, it was a dark period in India's history when Prime Minister Indira Gandhi declared the country to be in a state of emergency and as a result of which mandated three things the suspension of all civil liberties and fundamental rights, the second, jailing all political opposition, the third, the censoring of the free press. It is important to note that all three of these actions taken by Indira Gandhi during the state of emergency are in direct violation of the three core democratic tenets. Also, fun fact, in addition to all of this, the Cato Institute estimates that the tax rate around this time was roughly 99%. And ironically enough, only one political party stood in firm support of this 1975 emergency where democratic norms were completely violated. And that was the CPI, the Communist Party of India. So you will resonate with me finding the CPI's comments ironic when they criticize something as, destroying the democratic foundations of India, when they have served as the only staunch supporter for the only time in India's history wherein democratic norms were completely violated and were completely suspended. And the fact that the Communist Party of India is still able to brazenly make such statements without anybody calling out this hypocrisy shows me that there is still a lot more discourse that needs to be had regarding the perils of communism. So, where did communism originate? Interestingly, the word communism has Latin roots, from the word communis, which means of or for the community, owing to this etymology. And in terms of intent, communism as an ideology seems like one that would bring favorable outcomes, right? But we'll be explaining in this episode as to how, tragically, this has not been the case. In 1847, the Communist League was formed and two founding members of the organization, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, were tasked with writing a manifesto highlighting the objectives and values of the organization. And lo and behold, the Communist Manifesto was born. It was a 52-page political document that highlighted the goals of communism and the struggles faced by the proletariat, which is the working class typically referring to the laborer at that time, at the hands of the bourgeoisie, which referred to the ruling class, typically referring to the owners of said labor and land. Now, the Communist Manifesto was a resounding success, and archives from the German government estimate that 500 million copies of the book have been sold worldwide, and they've inspired countless government regimes around the world. Some prominent examples of regimes it's inspired in the 20th century were Vladimir Lenin in Russia, Fidel Castro in Cuba, and Mao Zedong in China. Tragically, unlike many authors who attain global stardom and outreach, Marx's inspiration took a very different trajectory, a trajectory that was violent and disgusting in almost every aspect, and one that altered human history for the worse. The Cato Institute corroborates that these were leaders who eliminated all political dissidents and opposition, starved their civilian population, and killed all private sector individuals indiscriminately. They propagated the most inhuman practices upon innocent people around the globe, and they were all directly inspired by Karl Marx's doctrine at some point of time. The Wall Street Journal and Harvard University Press, among other outlets, estimate that a whopping 100 million people have been killed as a result of communist regimes and policies in the past century. It is the single greatest catastrophe in human history as a result of government policies towards its citizenry in the 20th century. And it's important to note that I'm talking about catastrophes that stem from government policies, so we're not talking about things like disease or natural calamities and things like that. Moving on, Dr. Judith Bannister, who is a PhD from Stanford University and author of the book China's Changing Population, estimates that Mao's regime in China killed upward of 30 million people. To put this number in perspective, around 7.5 million people were killed in total in both the Armenian Genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire and the Holocaust at the hands of the Nazis. So keep this in mind. Mao's regime in China killed four times the number of people that died in both the Holocaust as well as the Armenian Genocide. So although communism has a nice etymology and seemingly good intentions, the sheer disparity between the intent and the outcomes of the ideology are too grave to consider anything else. Especially when this ideology has been implemented all around the world, ranging from Latin America to Europe to Asia, and has a collective fatality count of 100 million people. This is important to recognize just how devastating these outcomes have been regardless of what word communism originally stems from or what the intent of communism originally was. Potential arguments against drawing parallels between things like Nazism and communism or communism and colonialism actually hinge entirely on the fact that the intent wasn't the same as the devastating outcome. But here's the thing. Here's what is important to note, that even in the case of the Holocaust, for instance, the Nazis didn't explicitly tell all the Jews that they were going to be exterminated all at one go. The Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem states that the Nazis actually charged Jewish people for their train tickets to concentration camps because they didn't tell them that they were being sent to concentration camps. They told them that they were being sent to labor camps in Ukraine to help out with the struggling economy. The same can be said about British colonial rule in the Indian subcontinent. The Brits didn't just show up one day and tell the subcontinent that they were under siege. University of London archives tell us that the British Empire evolved from what was the East India Company, whose initial purpose was to partake in the South and Southeast Asian spice trade. Fidel Castro did not tell Cubans explicitly that he would kill dissidents or imprison political opposition. The Canadian author and journalist Doug Saunders states that after Castro's revolution overthrew Batista, who was another dictator in Cuba at the time, in 1959, he promised greater foreign investment and a multi-party democratic state were both in store for the nation of Cuba. And ironically, none of that happened. And in all three cases, the outcomes were very different from the explicit intent of the ideology. And since the outcomes have been so gravely devastating in terms of human lives lost, I would like to introduce the second section of this episode, which is That democratic countries should work toward marginalizing communism from the mainstream. Democracies, by the late President Abraham Lincoln's definition, of the people, by the people, and for the people, are countries wherein citizens can freely vote for their elected representatives. The fact that communism advocates for total state control and pretty much serves as democracy's antithesis should be sufficient enough for this condition, even without considering the Herculean atrocities that the communist ideology has been responsible for. But I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about a whole-scale institutional shift that democratic institutions should work toward implementing. Currently, at premier institutions around the world in democratic countries, ranging from the Ivy League in America to Oxbridge in the United Kingdom and the University of Delhi here in India, Marxist theory or some version of Marxism or communism is a common subject or course on the school syllabi at all these colleges, if obviously you wish to obtain a degree in a relevant field. I'm sure that on the engineering or math syllabus, this may not be the case. But anyway, I'm talking about the theory itself, the actual teachings that inspired all these tyrannical regimes. But these numbers, the 100 million people who died, are either entirely omitted or barely touched upon. You have, today, In 2019, student societies dedicated to Marxism and Communism at places like the London School of Economics and at Oxford. We've established that Communism has killed more people than Nazism, even considering the intent of both ideologies. But can you still imagine if you had a group called the Oxford Nazis walking around on your college campus, wouldn't that be beyond insane? The Communist Manifesto has sold more than 500 million copies and is today stored in UNESCO's World Memory Program, which for those of you wondering what that is, it's a program dedicated to preserving important works in the arts and humanities. Can you imagine if Adolf Hitler's biography, Mein Kampf, was stored in this library? Like I said, It is futile, and it is wrong to compare tragedies. But communism, in terms of outcomes, in terms of lives lost, yielded, at the very least, similar levels of devastation and horror as Nazism. Yet, unlike the latter, it is celebrated by democratic institutions and international organizations alike. More awareness in the global media, in academia, in politics needs to be afforded to the catastrophic perils that communism has caused throughout human history. The Black Book of Communism, also published by Harvard University Press, incidentally serves as the antithesis to the Communist Manifesto. This book was published in 1999 and documents the various atrocities and horrors imposed on civilian populations around the world as a direct result of communism. Also, incidentally, the book title of The Black Book of Communism was chosen intentionally to mirror the book title of another piece of literature, which was The Black Book, That book was written by the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee whose intention was to document the atrocities the Jewish people endured at the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust. So just for the record, me drawing parallels between the crimes of communism and those of Nazism is not some crazy conspiracy theory. It is well documented in a book published by the Harvard University Press, which accounts for the various crimes and lives lost throughout the globe at the hands of communist regimes. It is only once these acknowledgments are made at an institutional level where the academia, media, and politicians of democratic nations are all on board to disseminating knowledge about these dangers of communism, can we seriously work towards marginalizing communism from the mainstream, or at the very least, recognizing the heinous crimes that communist regimes have committed. So in conclusion, here's what I want to say. Even at Marx's best case, his ideology is irrelevant. The ideas of achieving class mobility and social welfare through communism that are mentioned in the Communist Manifesto hail from an era when national economies literally had only two factors of production, land and labor. Back then, the bourgeoisie owned the land and the proletariat served as a labor working on this land. But the global economy as we know it today is far more capital intensive and has many more nuanced levels of delegation and hierarchy thanks to processes such as globalization and the rapid technological advancements that have happened in the past few decades. There is no bourgeoisie class or proletariat class that you can use to separate people anymore. There are far more layers in this economy of which the communist ideology or Marxism simply cannot fathom. So none of those concepts would even be relevant today. But magically, even if somehow they were applicable, they would not be successful. Talking pure economics, the World Bank in a 2018 report talks about how free trade, which is free from the licenses and many regulations that a communist regime would require, has led to a direct increase in economic growth among low-income countries, and take the two most powerful countries today in the world in 2020 the United States and China, which have a combined GDP of more than 30 trillion US dollars, which is more than a third of global GDP. The United States, the American dream, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and their countless other examples of gargantuan economic success stem as a result of freedom from these communist policies, not their adoption of it. But this example may be even more telling. China, which according to the World Population Review, we read out is one of the five communist countries in the world today, but remember what we said at the start. It is an exception to the communist way of life in one aspect, and that's in terms of economics. And like we established at the start of the episode, communism is both an economic as well as a political system. And China made the economic exception to its otherwise communist way of life in 1978. And guess what? It is this exception and China's adoption of free market economic policies via processes like foreign investment and free trade that have accelerated China's meteoric rise to the near top of the economic food chain. And don't take my word for it, Harvard Business Review states that since 1978 up until 2018, China's economy has grown more than 50 times with more than 600 million people escaping poverty. And as per the World Population Review, again, to reiterate, there are five communist states in the world today, Vietnam, Laos, North Korea, China, and Cuba. And all five of them are politically communist while China is economically capitalist. But keep in mind, China is still politically communist, which means China is still terrible politically. Freedom House has consistently criticized the Chinese government for their repression of human rights. Websites such as Google and Facebook are completely banned in China while Uyghur Muslim minorities are being sent to concentration camps as we speak. And the other four countries, Laos, Vietnam, North Korea, and Cuba, are all equally bad politically. Freedom House states that these nations are experiencing an almost unprecedented level of internet censorship and a crackdown on civil liberties. And keep in mind that they don't even have the economic benefits that China does because unlike China, they're still economically communist. The Telegraph states that 71% of North Korea's population is undernourished, owing to North Korea's economic situation, and Casa Cuba, which is an organization that assists Cubans emigrating to Texas, stated that immigration from Cuba to the United States continued through the 21st century, given Cuba's economy being in dire straits and showing very little sign of improvement. So in conclusion, communism is greatly economically ineffective in addition to being politically devastating. There is not a single example in 2019 of a country that is wholly communist, keep in mind, both politically as well as economically, that is successful in either regard. And the only reason that China is successful economically is because they are no longer economically communist. Had China not economically liberalized in 1978, who knows? They may have been in the same boat as North Korea or Cuba, even in terms of their economy. So that's all on this episode of A Whole Lot of Gray. If you liked this episode and want to stay updated on future content, please be sure to subscribe to this channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify youtube or whatever platform you are listening to this on additionally please feel free to reach out to me on twitter or on our official website both of which are available in this episode's description